Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Ruiel as he continues his sermon series in Colossians. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, I just wanted to show a 30-second little snippet there from The Incredibles. Not only because I love that movie, but also, and the movies that followed after it, but also because of how deeply that thought resonates with Christianity, with who we are as Christians. Your identity as a Christ follower, your identity in Christ, is one of our most valuable possessions. And so as believers, we protect it, we understand it, we walk in it, we grow in what it means to have an identity in Christ because of the gospel. Just about every time Paul tells Christians, and you can go ahead and turn to Colossians 2. We're going to be in, in verse 6 through 15 this morning. Just about every time the Apostle Paul tells Christians how to live, every time we get commands in the Christian life, he puts those commands in order. Before he gives any kind of command to keep, the Apostle Paul usually tells us an identity to embrace. Before the imperatives comes the indicatives before he tells us how to live. Most of the time, the Apostle Paul tells us who we are in Christ. For the Apostle Paul, identity is a priority, which means we must be aware of of putting the cart before the horse, right? You will very rarely, you will never ever, in fact, read in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul call non-Christians to live like Christians, He will never exhort, admonish, or expect an unbeliever to live like a believer. First, he will say, if you're an unbeliever, trust in Jesus for salvation. And when you do that, when you believe in him and him alone, you have a new identity. You are a new creation in Christ. And then from that moment on, we are walking out, we are understanding deeper and deeper what that identity is and what it means for us. It has massive implications for our Christian life. Changing more into the image of Christ is first not an issue of what we do, but it is an issue of who we are. As Christians, we have been redeemed, past tense. We are also in the process of being redeemed, present tense. And this morning, I want to look at the the heart of Colossians 2, 6 through 15, the heart of this letter, which talks about the process of change and being redeemed as a Christian. Change, we're going to say three things about Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15 this morning. Change is not an issue of elevation, acceleration, or consummation. Change in the Christian life is not an issue of mountaintop experiences or the valleys below. Change in the Christian life is not an issue of acceleration, how fast you can go and what specific direction. Change is not an issue of consummation. You will never reach the point in your earthly life where you are done changing and transforming more and more into the image of God. That is an ongoing process that starts the moment you believe and it ends the moment that you are with Jesus in glory. Number two, change is not an issue of the mind. It's not certain methods. It's not even an issue of physical matter. Change is first an issue of your identity in Christ. 
And so that's where we want to go, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Number one in your outline this morning, change is not an issue of elevation, acceleration, or consummation. Look down again at these verses I just read. I want you to read, I'll read again verses uh, 6 and 7 here in Colossians 2. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And that walk in him command, that's the main command right here that we're going to explore in this first part of the, of the text this morning. Verse 7 says, we are rooted, we are built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Um, I've got the privilege of, of coaching basketball again this year, and, and as a coach, probably really until this year, might just have to do with the age of my kids, I'm not too sure, but I've come to acknowledge and understand body language from players perhaps better than I ever have before. All right, so we've, I've got several kids that I coach on a, on a weekly, normal basis uh, until basketball season is over, and they come in, and you can know something about what's going on in their life based on their body language from the second that they walk into the gym. All right, some of my kids have a Rudy syndrome. Uh, they're five foot nothing, they're 100 nothing pounds, and they ha don't have a speck of athletic ability. Right, and so when they walk in the gym, they're kind of like, they're fearful, they're timid. They're not going to be the first in line to do the drills. They're not going to lead out in any of the running stuff that we're doing. They're just, they're just not great, and they wear that in their body language. Other, other kids walk into the gym, and it's, it's the exact different, exact opposite of that. And usually, their, their pants are hanging a little bit lower, and they got this little walk to them that goes... What's up, coach? What's going on, man? And I say, what's going on? Get on the baseline. You're going to run suicides for a while because of how you just walked in the gym, right? <laughs> Other kids still, they make a bad play in, in a game or in practice, and immediately their head goes down. They're defeated. They don't run and get back on defense. They just they pout instead. And, and you wear all of these things on their body. You can see it on the outside. And I've come to understand and acknowledge that as a coach, the way that a basketball player on the court, what they're feeling, what they're going through, whatever it is that they've got going on in their life, they walk that out. You can see it in the way that they walk. It's really not that different than what Paul is talking about here in the Christian life. It's the same as true of Christians that is true of my basketball players. You can see almost what's going on in their life by the way that we walk, by our body language even at times. So the main, main command here in chapter 2, verse 6, is to walk. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And Paul is taking his cues from the Old Testament here. A person's lifestyle is often depicted, especially in the book of Proverbs, as choosing one of two paths. Two paths are offered to every Christian at any moment in time. There is the path of righteousness, and there is the path of folly or foolishness. Often the more difficult path is the godly path. It's the one that Proverbs encourages us to walk down. It's the one that Jesus encourages us to walk down in the Gospels. Paul uses walk as a very common biblical idiom that goes all the way back through the Old Testament. But let me clarify what Paul is not saying here. 
Paul is not telling Christians at the starting line, runners, take your mark. He's not at the racetrack with his green flag saying, drivers, start your engine. He's saying something more like the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. The Christian walk is simply putting one foot in front of the other, steadily, meticulously, and intentionally. And as a command, walk here, just point out some observations, walk is in the present tense, okay? It's an ongoing action. When we walk with the Lord, we are on a journey to a specific destination, to Christ-likeness. Walk indicates ongoing action, and it means that the Christian life is neither passively retreating nor aimlessly wandering. We're not looking for the next thing to happen. We're not trying to read the clouds for this next dream or this next thing that's going to happen in our life. We're not supposed to sit idly and being conformed to the world. Instead, we are being actively transformed by the Word. We have purpose. We have meaning. We have direction in life. It's a one-step-at-a-time faith walk with the Lord. There's a lot to be said here about time, about daily living with Christ. I don't have a ton of time to explore this, but, but typically we go through seasons of life when it comes to our, our present tense walk with the Lord, right? When you're young, most young people, all they can think about is the future. The decisions that they're making today are going to impact tomorrow. So you think about where do I want to be two years from now, three years from now, where do I want to be ten years from now. Younger people tend to focus on what's ahead of them. As you grow older, it's the exact opposite. Older people tend to look back to the past. Either they idealize it or they demonize it because of past horrific experiences. But really, for the Christian, there is no past golden age which we should return to. There's no hellish experience from the past that consigns us to any kind of lesser life in the present. What we have is the here and now. And I love how one writer put this. He said, there will never be enough time if we look at it as a commodity to be consumed rather than a gift to be enjoyed. The only time we have is now. The only task is the one set before us today. And so what the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to do with this very simple command to walk is he's, he's encouraging us to live in the present to not dwell too much on the past and not think too much in the future, which is not guaranteed, we have no control over it, but to walk moment by moment in the time that we would regard as now. And Paul, de- Paul describes this walk uh, using a comparison, right? He says, just as you have received Christ Jesus. How do we walk? We walk just as we have received Christ Jesus. And this is totally different when you just Sit down and look at the text here. This is totally different than what most people will say, several people will say about the Christian life. Paul is not telling us, just in this one simple verse, he's not telling us that the Christian life is is keeping a checklist, going through every single item in the list and, and checking it off as we go. He's not telling us that now that we're Christians, it's our job to store up all this merit all these things that will uh, hopefully have some kind of eternal significance or meaning to us, to it. He's not telling us to, to put that initial faith in Christ to the side and now move on past it in a completely different way, almost like we're moving past the gospel. 
He's not saying any of those things. He keeps going back to the gospel. He keeps going back to our faith in Jesus. We receive Jesus by faith. We walk with Jesus by faith. One of those is primary. The other one is derivative. And the faith walk that he describes for a Christian has has four modifiers to it. There's four participles that describe exactly how do we walk. What does it mean to walk with the Lord as we have received as we have received him. Four modifiers. We miss uh, some incredibly important aspects of this when we read it in English that you can see with the verb tenses here. The first way we walk with the Lord, this, this, the way that it's described, verse 7, is being rooted in Christ. And that's an agricultural metaphor. It brings up something that's very organic concerning our faith and our growth in the Christian life and walking with God. What's very interesting is is this is actually in the perfect tense. It's a participle that's in the perfect tense in Greek. And a perfect tense describes action from the past that has present tense results to it. All right, we should translate this something as having been rooted in the faith. If you've got the New American Standard, that's exactly how they translate it. It is the best translation of that participle. When God saved us, He didn't pull us out like a weed and discard us and throw us somewhere to just see where the wind would drive us. We were rooted in Christ, in the rich divine soil of God's garden. We are nourished, and all of that happened in the past because of the gospel. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, all of us are rooted in Christ, something that took place in the past that has present tense results. The next two participles are are totally different in tense. The next two participles are present tense, not perfects. Having been rooted in the gospel in the past, we are now, verse 7, being built up on a daily, regular basis. We are in the process of becoming established or becoming strengthened in the faith. And so Paul shifts the metaphor from agriculture to the often painful, strenuous work of construction, of building something. And contractors will tell you if, you if you're going to build something, if you're going to start a project, the very first thing to think about, the very first thing to be concerned about is the foundation upon which you are building. Right? The foundation is extremely important when it comes to our identity in Christ. These two participles, built and established, are in the middle passive voice in Greek. What that means is that these are not things that we are actively doing, but they are things that God does for us and through us. God is the contractor here. God is the construction worker. He's the general contractor. Our job is to be used, to be ready to be used, to be useful for the kingdom of God, however he would see fit for us to serve for his purposes. So far, All three of these modifiers of walk, having been rooted, being strengthened, being built up, all three of those are the work of God. God is the one that's carrying all of these things out. We think about those verses in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The fourth participle is is really interesting. The fourth one is the only one that's in the active voice. 
You want to say, these are three things that God does for us in our walk with Christ. He roots us up. He builds us. He strengthens us. Our responsibility is the, first, the fourth one. The fourth one is abounding in thanksgiving. Our response to what Christ is doing through us and for us is to live a life marked by gratitude. And listen, one of the biggest killers of gratitude in our day, it's, it's the entitled, entitled thought of our generation that is killing us in this culture, right? Entitlement. You know, they, they say inflation is coming for all of us. We're starting to feel that at the grocery store, the gas pump, just these normal things. Uh, man, I'm feeding three mouths, three kids in our family. Those grocery bills just keep getting higher and higher. And the hardest inflation is going to hit is the person who feels entitled. But the person who is grateful and thankful, who lives a life of gratitude, those things will overflow no matter what's happening in the economy, no matter what's happening out there in the world and the society around us. We are always constantly thankful to God. He has rooted us. He is working his work in us to transform us more into his image. And so, so we're thankful for that. On a daily basis, one of my favorite authors put it this way, what separates privilege from entitlement is a gratitude. And the Apostle Paul would definitely agree with that. Listen, Christianity is not some emotional experience that we look to to take us higher and higher. The process of change as a Christian is not trying to go faster or accelerate quicker. Change is not an issue of elevation, acceleration, or consummation. Change is walking with Christ on a step-by-step, moment-by-moment basis, trusting him along the way, relying on the Holy Spirit for wisdom, for grace, and being thankful for that no matter what's happening in our life. Number two this morning, change is not a, simply an issue of the mind, methods, or matter. Number one, change is not an issue of elevation, acceleration, or consummation. Number two, change is not simply an issue of the mind, methods, or matter. Look down at verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, last week I talked to you a little bit about Feuerbach and how he believed it wasn't God who created man in his image, but it's actually man who creates God in their image. That's kind of the story of the fall, that story of the sin. And he was right about that. As we slip off into sin, that's exactly what happens. But I want to pick up uh, with Feuerbach and go to another guy after him who really changed the way we think about philosophy and life, whose name is Karl Marx. Uh, Marx's main question was not if religion was true. He didn't believe that religion was true. He believed it was false. Marx was puzzled by how people can look to religion as a viable intellectual option because he believed in the modern period and the Enlightenment it wasn't a good intellectual option on the marketplace of beliefs. And he came away with two conclusions. When you think about Marxism, he said that people will turn to religion because of harsh economic conditions or realities, which means that only those who are going through harsh economic conditions are the people who will turn to religion 
and need God. But he also said, if economic conditions are ever going to change, then religion has to die, that people have to look past religion, beyond religion, uh, for that significance in order to revolt and make things equal. His famous quote is this. It says, sounds a lot like Feuerbach. He says, man makes religion. Religion does not make man. So religion is indeed the self-consciousness and the self-esteem of man who has either not yet won through to himself or has already lost himself again. He calls religion the sigh of the oppressed, the heart of the heartless world, the soul of the soulless conditions. It is an opium of the people. It's the famous, famous quote. You, by the way, um, if you ever uh, wonder, you ever wonder why sexuality in the culture today is getting so politicized? You can, you can thank Karl Marx for that, right? Because if you're going to change society, the best and the strongest avenue to do that is through what? Politics. Marx knew that. And what we're seeing in our world, in our culture, in, po- in the political arena today is a reflection of the influence of Marx and the, and the power that he had on it. Marx came up with a philosophy. It was a theory revolving around conflict. He said if we're going to, if class struggle, if these tiers of, of the economy, of socialism, of, of society, if they're ever going to change, and we don't have the have and the have-nots anymore, there has to be a change from the private ownership of the few to the public ownership of the many. Um, the few must be replaced by the many in terms of ownership and power in society. And so Paul says, says in Colossians here, and I'm just bringing this up because it's one of the philosophies that many people are living their life towards and, and thinking about as they live in maybe a Christian arena or a non-Christian arena. Uh, Paul said in Colossians that Christianity is a change that is distinct from philosophies. He's not talking about Marxism. He's not talking about socialism. He's not talking about communism. He's ta- probably talking about the early Greek philosophers of his day. He's talking about the, uh, the Plato's, the Socrates, the guys that were pursuing wisdom. He's talking about Stoicism. He's talking about Epicureanism, the things that he mentions in Acts chapter 17. And Paul said in, in Colossians that Christianity and change is distinct from philosophies. It's different than ideas. It's different than theories. A change is, for a Christian is not like the change proposed by Karl Marx. It's not going to come through man-centered traditions. It's not going to come through humanism. Change is certainly not going to come through mysticism or any kind of New Age concepts you might want to tap into. And the reason is, is because change is not an issue of the mind. It's not an issue of matter. It's not an issue of methods. There's a major contrast between the change that Paul is talking about in verse 8 and the change that he asks Christians to engage in verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, here's the change that he wants. He says, in Christ... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Speaking of Christ, in Christ, in him, is the fullness of deity, and it dwells bodily. Dwelling here probably refers to uh, another Old Testament concept. 
Paul's probably picking up on the idea of of God dwelling with his people Israel in the Holy of Holies through the temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament. We know that God is present everywhere because of how he has revealed himself. There's a special sense that God is present in the Holy of Holies. So Paul further explains that the presence of Christ is now in believers that the fullness of deity dwells in this person, Jesus, and it dwells in him bodily. The, the Greek word there is uh, somatikas, is how you would say this. God did not take up residence among his people in a building like the Old Testament. God took up residence in a physical body through Jesus in the incarnation when he came to the earth. And there's a word play in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 mentions the fullness of deity, as a noun. Verse 10 mentions the fullness in the form of a verb. The reason that Paul does this is to address the false teaching of his day. It's not really that different from the false teachers of our day, people infringing upon the truth of the gospel. Even though we cannot be certain about what exactly the false teaching of Paul's day was, we can at least know this. This is extremely clear. The false teachers that Colossae was encountering, the believers in Colossae were encountering, were saying they wanted to convince believers that Jesus was good, but he wasn't good enough. That you had to look to something outside of Christ in addition to Jesus to have a real significant religious experience. It was good that you had Jesus, but you need something more than that. If you want to go deeper in your Christian walk, you need something more than Christ. If you want to go to the next mountaintop experience, you're going to need something more than Christ. If you're going to be fulfilled and satisfied in your Christian walk, you're going to need something more than Christ. In other words, Christ would only bring the believers partially. He would not bring them the entire way to a life of fullness and satisfaction in God. Christ could fill up your gas tank, couldn't change your oil. Christ could pay for your ticket, but he couldn't get you into the game. You're going to have to show up and go through the gate yourself, right? Paul says very clearly over and over again, and this is one of the dominant teachings in Colossians, that Christ is all you need, that in Christ you don't need another power. Christ is the head of all power. You don't need another authority. Christ is over all authorities, And in Christ, you are under the authority of him. Number two, change is not an issue of the mind. It's not like a philosophy, an idea, or a theory. Change is not about methods that change over time. They're never static. Change is not an issue of, of matter or mysticism. Number three, change is an issue of your identity in Christ. Change starts with who you are in Christ. Your identity is your most valuable possession, and so protect it. Identity is, one way to understand Christian Christian identity, it's your sense of self. It's it's your sense of awareness about Christ. Uh, It's a sense of the value that you have about yourself, about your significance. The lie that you're going to be told over and over in our culture, in our time, is that in order to understand yourself, in order to understand who you are, what you really need to do is look to your feelings. 
look inside for those emotional experiences. Another lie that you'll be told is, is that, guess what? You get to decide who you are. This is one of your privileges. You're different than everybody else. You can decide who you are, who you want to be. Nobody else can infringe upon you. Anything else outside of that, you are in the driver's seat. You are in control. Uh, there's a famous writer for the, the Times who wanted really nothing more than to be a, a really great writer. And he shared this quote, and I think it's, it's significant. I heard this um, from another pastor. I think it's really good. He said, When good writing was my only goal in life, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. And for this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell if something I had written was either good or bad. I need for it to be good in order to feel sane. You're like, isn't this, this is how a lot of us approach our work and our identity, right? In order to be sane and have some semblance of, of joy in, in what we're doing through our work, we look to our work to provide that for us. I need it for, I need it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written, to see what was on the page, rather than what I would have liked to have seen. What is, what is this guy saying? He's saying, I put so much stock, I put so much significance in my work. If I wasn't on the top of the pile, if I wasn't the best writer that I could be, if my writing didn't stand out from the rest of the pack, everything else would fall apart. It would plunge me into a life of insanity. I would have no meaning. I would have no more significance. When you look to anything for an identity outside of Christ, here's what this quote is saying, it will crush you. When you look to things, when you look to a job, when you look to sat status, when you look to power, when you look to achievement, when you look to success, if that is where you find your greatest sense of identity, eventually it will crush you. Most of us, you have to ask that to a person who's, who's over 50, and they will confirm exactly the truth of these statements. And so what I want to do is just, just end with, with three thoughts about our identity in Christ and how to begin this process of change as a Christian more and more into the image of Jesus based on our identity and what God has done for us through the power of the gospel. Number one, as we close, your identity is not rooted in what you do. Your identity is rooted in who you are. Your identity is not rooted in what you do, but in who you are in Christ. Look down at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now Israel struggled with this. They were given the sign of circumcision as an outward physical mark that they were in the family of God, that they were in the kingdom of Israel. But the purpose of circumcision wasn't to teach something outwardly, it was to teach something inwardly. It was an inward spiritual reality. In other words, it's not circumcision of the hands that matter. The Apostle Paul says it's circumcision of the heart that matters. It's not what you do on the outside that matters, it's what's done for you on the inside that forms your identity in Christ. And so in Romans chapter 2, the 
the Apostle Paul would say something like this. No one is a Jew who is merely a Jew outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. And the reason why he says that is because there's no law, there's no practice, there's no ritual, there's nothing that you can do on the outside that's going to ground you in your identity on the inside. It has to be done for you by Christ in the truth of the gospel. We need an identity that is deeper than the things we do, that goes down to the foundation of who we are and what Christ has done for us. And so our identity is not ultimately in what we do, Our identity is in who we are. It's in Christ. Number two, victory over sin is positional more than practical. Victory over sin is a positional truth more than it is a practical truth. When the Apostle Paul tells us how to walk as Christians, his emphasis is is on our position in Christ. His emphasis is on righteousness in God. Before positional, before practical tactics, Paul will tell us about positional truth. And so what is our position in Christ? Look down at verse 12. Having been buried with him, with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. What is our position in Christ based on those verses? We are buried with Christ. As he died physically in the flesh, we died to sin. And we are raised to a newness of life. We are, we are raised, we are resurrected with Christ. Just as Christ was resurrected from the grave three days after his burial, so we too, at the moment of faith, are dead in our sin and raised to the newness of life. Our position as Christ is that we are made alive together with Christ, that the life that exists in us is the life that came from the Father through Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit. We are buried, raised. We are alive now together with Christ. All of those things are things that have been done for us. They are a gift based on the truth of the gospel. The second that you place your faith in Jesus, buried, dead to your sin, raised, made alive together with Christ. That's our position. Number three, our identity is rooted when assurance is remembered. Our identity is rooted when assurance is remembered. I want, to, I want you to draw your attention to this last phrase in verse 13, and then I'll read verses 14 and 15 as well. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. And we're not forgiven for just some things. We're not forgiven for the sins that we committed up to the point that we trusted Jesus. And the rest of the sins that we commit in our Christian life, we've got to deal with those differently. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.13, we are forgiven how many of our sins? 
all of our sins. That means past, present, and future forgiven. That means you don't have to worry about if you struggle with this, whether you're going to spend eternity with God or eternity apart from God, right? That means that he's forgiven. He has paid the price of every single one of the sins that you will ever commit. If you truly placed your faith in him, you are forgiven, you have been forgiven, and you will always be forgiven by Christ through the power of the gospel, right? There's nothing that we've done, nothing that we will do that will separate us from the love of Christ. None of these things can separate us from God. But he who is not withheld his son, how will he not also freely give us all things in Christ, including the canceling of the debt that was before us? We are forgiven of all of our sins. He canceled it at the foot of the cross. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. And in that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. There is now, therefore, no spiritual darkness. There is no spiritual authority greater than Christ that can overcome you, that can torment you, that can torture you and keep you in your sin. You have been delivered from those things through Jesus. The one, the greater is he that is in you than the one that is in the world, right? And so we walk out this identity of victory, of forgiveness of our identity in Christ, not because of the things that we can do, but because what God has done for us. And it's to this end that we're going to draw our attention to, uh, to taking the Lord's Supper so we can think more deeply about the truth of the gospel. I've asked uh, Derek, music team, to come up, deacons, elders, if you guys are helping to serve with the Lord's Supper. Um, I want to encourage you to go back and, and get ready to serve the elements this morning. Our identity in Christ is one of our most valuable possessions. It's an identity that goes deeper than our struggles, than our sins, the difficulties, the obstacles, the suffering that we might face. It's an identity that is firmly rooted, grounded, being built up in Christ. When we look to Christ for a deepest sense of significance, meaning, and identity, all the other things in life that we struggle with pale in comparison to the deep riches of who we are in Jesus and the power of the gospel on our behalf. And again, I want to um, encourage us to think about that as we, we take the Lord's Supper. Let me pray and I'm going to pass it over to Pastor Dustin here. Father in heaven, again, just, uh, just thank you so much for what you have done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves in giving us a, a powerful identity in Jesus. It is through him, it's through his death on the cross that we are loved, um, that we are chosen. We've been lavished with grace upon grace, that we are forgiven all of our sins. God, help us to, to think deeply, help us to walk more intentionally in who you've created us to be. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that allows us to do so. It's in the name of Christ that we pray this morning. Amen.